produced by the Commission for Global Dimensions of Student Development, ACPA and Anchor, Global Connections aim to connect folks from all functional areas interested in cross-cultural learning, development of intercultural competencies, internationalization, and student services around the world. Episode of Global Connections. I am your host, Li Xing Li. This is the living room space we invite our guests to share about their stories and narratives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast of Global Connections, CGDSD. I am your host, Li Xing. Joining me today is Dr. Kevin Stansberg. Kevin is a first-generation college student who recently completed his doctoral of education in organizational leadership studies at Northeastern University, where he was recognized as one of the 100 most outstanding students across the university. Kevin has offered the field of student affairs research a scholarly contribution in the form of his dissertation study, exploring the cultural dexterity building of expatriate student affairs professionals working at overseas campuses, for which he has received the 2022 ACPA Excellence in International Research Award. Bridging a multi-continent higher education career and a research interest in culturally capable university leadership, he brings a wealth of experience to his scholarly endeavors to advance student affairs practice. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you, and congratulations again on your recent ACP Award of 2022 Excellence in International Research. We're so happy to have you here share your research on cultural dexterity building for student affairs professionals. Um, the key word or the topic in your research is cultural dexterity. It's very attractive and new to me. How did you come up with this thing, and what is the inspiration behind the research? That's a great question. So, so global dexterity, cultural dexterity, it's, uh, it's, I got it from a, a professor named Andy Milinsky, who's in Boston, who I'm, whom I've never met, but who has written a book on, on global dexterity and cultural dexterity. And I became aware of his work from a student affairs professional named Jenny Roberts. Uh, Jenny had worked previously in Qatar. And when he left the country, he wrote a really beautiful, published a really beautiful article about his experience there. And he used Malinsky's global dexterity model to, to talk about some of the cross-cultural differences. Uh, and that's how, I, that's how I originally got tapped into the idea. So for, for listeners who aren't familiar, it's essentially what Malinsky does is he says, you know, under, under previous cross-cultural models, what you were doing as, a, as an outsider is you were memorizing what's appropriate behavior somewhere else and you were adapting, you know, to that. What Malinsky does instead is he asks people to start with thinking about their own culture, thinking about how would I operate in these different settings in my own, you know, home country, and then looking at what's appropriate in another culture, and then trying to find a way to bridge the two. And the I think the, the big difference in his model is that he, he wants practitioners to maintain their own value sets while acting appropriate in other settings. And I think in student affairs, because we often start our work with self-reflection, it was a really good model. So I, I, I entirely owe the finding of that model to Denny Roberts. 
Sounds good. I really like the idea that we have to start uh, with our own culture and then learn the local culture, the local your culture, and then we bridge the two and create a like our cultural thing, right? <laughs> Instead, yeah, of exactly. I learned from your research. Yeah, great. And I, I learned from your research that you mentioned the uh, um, expatriates or the expat. I look it up in the dictionary and it says a person who lives outside their native country. So for those who are non-native uh, native English speakers like me, could you help us understand who are considered as expats in your study here? That's a great question. So of course, like you just said, ex expats in general would be somebody who is working outside of their home, outside of their country of origin. In my study, so many of the campuses across the Arabian Peninsula have, have large numbers of expats. In fact, there are countries uh, in, on the Arabian Peninsula where the entire country has more expats than nationals living in the entire country. Um, for the purpose of my study, because I was looking at cross-cultural issues, I only focused on expats from Western countries because otherwise it would have really, it would have really been a wild web to un untangle. So for me, I had different participants in each round of research. I did three rounds of research, but the expats uh, came from Australia, Canada, Ireland, uh, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. I see. So the Western countries can be considered like the English native speakers, right? English speaking countries. They, yes, they were all uh, native English speaking countries. I see. And I also learned that your study was um, entailed three rounds of research. Could you walk us through each round of the research? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I did action research, which the, the kind of three main tenets that I see in action research are that you're, you're working in tandem with your research participants. You're kind of a co-participant, uh, that it's iterative. So in case of my research, I did three cycles and it usually has a social justice component to it. So in, in my research, what I did the first round, which we call cycle zero or baseline, is I met with uh, Western expats who were working in student affairs roles and they were working in two different countries in Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And I basically asked them questions of, about the uh, cross-cultural situations that they encountered in their work using the Smolensky global dexterity model. Basically finding out where was their dissonance? Where were they, where were they encountering challenges? Then about a year later, I did the second round of research which was called cycle one. And in cycle one, I specifically was meeting with Saudi Arabian nationals uh, across three different campuses in Saudi Arabia. And I was sharing with them what the expats had said in cycle zero to get their perspectives and to try to get some context to what they had to say. Uh, and then about a year after that, uh, slightly less than a year after that, I did cycle two. And cycle two was where there was an action step. So in cycle two, I got together a total of 12 participants from, from both Western countries, as well as natives from the Arabian Peninsula together. And they did a number of different actions. So there were some videos they watched. There was a lecture that they participated in. They did um, practice exercises on their own. They did some intergroup dialoguing. And then they had exit interviews with myself. Uh, and in, in there, we basically brought the two concepts together and tried to help the two groups to learn from each other so they could sort of maximize the impact of their practice. Wow, that sounds very interesting. It seems that from the research, it's not only for you to try to figure out why and how, but really helping the local community to, to learn from each other and build a local community of the we, our module, our frame. Or yes, you know, it's interesting because that's one of the ways that I grew as a researcher. So when I 
started. When you look at the early rounds of my research, my focus was on the expats. My focus was how can I get the expats to be more uh, culturally sensitive and how can I get them to be more impactful? But what really happened in the end is that both groups, you know, which is a much better outcome, obviously, but both groups mm -hmm. really grew and learned about each other and how to basically create a new uh, system because most of the campuses that my participants were at were trying to adopt some Western ideas and some Western ways of doing student affairs work, um, but wanting to do that in a way that really, and not, not just incorporated, but was really founded on indigenous knowledge. I see, I see. And since your research is about uh, working for the experts working overseas, um, uh, we are personally curious, I'm personally curious in your research, did any of your interviewees or respondents or even yourself um, so mention, can share how um, you ended up doing working overseas in Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, like what are the, what could be the factors that influence your decision making? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the things that I originally thought about researching was what were some of the motives for people to go overseas and work in, in new countries. That ended up not being something I used later as the research went on. For myself, you know, I, so I've spent the, I've been in student affairs for 20 years. The first 10 years were in the U.S. and the last 10 have been overseas. And for me, it was mostly just an interest in having a different kind of life. You know, so when I first moved overseas, I moved to China. I was the Dean of Students for the Beijing Center for Chinese Studies, which at that time operated as Loyola University Chicago's campus overseas. And it served as a study abroad host site for Jesuit institutions. So we had students from all over the world, mostly studying in the US, coming over to, to, to China for a semester or two. Uh, and I've done some other overseas work since then. The last five years have all been in Saudi Arabia. So for me, it was it was coming initially from a, a, a personal interest. I wanted to see the world and I wanted to explore and I wanted to get new perspectives. I think that was true of a lot of the folks that I've met, but there were other motives that other people mentioned. I, I, for sure, for some participants, there were, um, there were financial rewards in, in being overseas. Uh, mm -hmm. or moving because they wanted to be a lot. Some, some folks were, were like third culture kids. You know, they didn't oh. have necessarily a country that they saw as home for them anymore. I so and that was not my own experience. I see. Wow, that's interesting. Wow, I didn't recognize that the third uh, culture kids. Um, but I, I can recall when I am traveling for recruitment, there are some non-native um Arabian born students, they're from different countries, but they live and uh, study there and try to come to the United States. That's, that's really good sharing. Thank you. So in your research, um, have you into any challenges? Like what type of challenges did you face in your research? Sure. So, well, of course there were many. It started with a challenge. That's, you know, kind of where the, the problem of practice began, which was that I had tracked from having worked overseas in a couple of different contexts, uh, that there were cultural challenges that people were facing in their work. And there weren't a whole lot of resources, particularly geared towards student affairs uh, professionals, but in general, to how to overcome those and how to see those things differently. And uh, so, so that was, I mean, that's like the, the problem of practice, if you will, that's sort of where the main thing was, in terms of some of the challenges I ran into, though, there were many. <laughs> so for one, it took a long time for me to decide 
what was going to be the scope of the project, right? So had I, had I focused on just one university, for example, that would have been an easier way to get participants and to have more specific findings, but the transferability wouldn't have been so great. Um, and then I would have been reliant on that one host site to want to continue through this multi-year project. On the opposite end, there was a point when I thought about doing this focused on the Middle East, and very quickly, my participants from round one, the Saudi Arabian participants were like, no, 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 no. The Middle East is too big. It's too geographically and economically and culturally diverse. The, the, the findings from that would not be very ap applicable or useful and probably very difficult mm -hmm. to pinpoint. So it took me some time to kind of, you know, figure out what was what was the right scope of the project. And then the, the last that, that I'll mention, which is also probably something a lot of researchers out there can relate to right now was COVID. So originally oh, yeah, what I set out to do, yeah, originally my change agent, what I had envisioned was that it would be an in-person kind of day long or maybe even more than one day um, kind of intergroup dialogue facilitated exchange. And, you know, my, my cycle to research happened in the spring of 2020. So <laughs> very wow. quickly that, that went away. Now that ended up being good. Because by moving it online, it was in, it, it saved me basically all of the costs that I would have incurred. And it also made for a much more um, culturally diverse and much more country diversity in terms of the participants, because it was free for everyone to participate. No one had to travel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. COVID hit and made everything different. And you should be so proud of yourself for such a big I completely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, for me, actually, I COVID worked to my advantage as a doctoral student in that, you know, for about a year, there wasn't a whole lot else I could do. And so being able to code my data and, and write about it was a really good use of time. Got you. Yeah. Um, so the next question is what are the most exciting or surprising discoveries in your research? Sure. Well, I won't bore you with all of the details. They're in the dissertation, which is available for free online in ProQuest if anyone wants to, to read it. Um, I think the most important, uh, which is not necessarily surprising, but the most important is the applicability of Malinsky's model and the adaptability of the framework that he uses. So basically testing, is, is this six-part cultural dexterity model a good way for us to talk about the cross-cultural differences between Western um, and uh, Saudi, not Saudi Arabian, uh, Arabian Peninsula ways of doing in student affairs. And I found that it, that it was, participants found it was very intuitive to understand and that they were able to apply it and use it and speak to it. And I tested that in a number of different ways both in groups and individually and in writing and verbally. Uh, so that's helpful, but maybe not surprising. Um, I think my most surprising finding was actually had to do with the, the virtual component of it. So when I moved this online, participants were really clear that they, that they needed it to be done in an efficient way. They didn't want to spend the whole day online. <laughs> you know, they, I mean, they, they got together in a couple of different um, times. Yeah. Uh, and one of the practices that I had never heard of and probably never would have seen if I hadn't moved this online was this idea of swift trust. Mm. And basically, in a, in a nutshell for, for listeners, you know, a lot of times when we do in student affairs and we're doing like a group facilitation, we spend a lot of time sort of setting ground rules. Yes. And the idea of swift trust and, and the way that it worked well in my virtual environment was basically the facilitator just establishes trust. They just say, 
you can you can be trustful. I did it in three ways. I had so I had um, interpersonal trust or in, mm -hmm. no intrapersonal trust. So this was I told all the participants that they could trust that they belonged, that no one had to have imposter syndrome. They had all either been hand selected by me or through members of my professional network. Mm -hmm. uh, that they could have trust with interpersonal trust, which was they could trust that that the others in the room were all also student affairs professionals and could understand the context that people were speaking in. And the third was system trust, that because they were all doing this as part of my dissertation, they had all signed rights through the IRB process. Yes. Uh, and what was amazing is I could establish that trust by just sort of saying it in about two minutes <laughs> and saved probably you know, 20 minutes of, of activities. And unanimously, all of the participants who remembered it said it worked. There was one participant who didn't remember that we had gone over it, but that participant went on to say they also felt comfortable sharing in the group. Mm, wow, so that's that interesting. Yeah, I had never heard of it before, but it was an efficient and effective way to, to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe just because your research is very attractive and interesting, like people get into the trust pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. With the experience of conducting research, um, could you share some advice for new professionals or graduate students? Sure. Well, I, I had, I, you know, I, I think I got a lot of really good advice along the way. So my advice is not original. It's, it's things that were shared with me. But one thing that I had been uh, suggested to do and that most people in my program did was to focus our research on our own work. So they kind of joke that it's me search instead of research, um, but that, that was helpful to me. So by doing this action research study and actually working in my own context, I was able to think about things in a much deeper way than I would have been able to do if it had been a more kind of objective um, you know, situation. Uh, and then I, I think another thing, so I, ha I had more than one chair as, as the time of my dissertation went on because my first chair got promoted. Um, but one of the things that she regularly told me was, you know, your dissertation is not meant to be your like penultimate study. It's meant to be your first study. Uh, mm -hmm. And so keep it simple, keep it focused, um, you know, keep it, you know, innovative and have it be something new and, and helpful, but don't overdo it. And I would say that one of the things that comes up consistently when I'm talking with other doctoral students now is they have that same feeling. They feel like they need to do something that's so big and is going to change the world. When in fact, what they need to do is graduate. <laughs> so what they need to do is <laughs> learn how to do research, learn how to analyze it, learn how to write about it. And they can always expand on that research for the rest of their careers. They can write articles and they can do all kinds of additional research. Um, but I would just, my advice that I'm going to reiterate from, from what was told to me is this doesn't have to be your life's work. This can be the next step in your own kind of education process. Thanks for the sharing. So then what will be your next step for your life work? Um, are, what, <laughs> well, are, how are you gonna use this research for your future work? That's a great question. You know, it's to be determined. I, I don't even wanna project what I might do because I don't know. I can, I'm happy to share and, and be vulnerable with, with listeners and saying, so I left Saudi Arabia uh, in January of this year uh, with the idea that I would job search for a new job for the fall. And I am in fact spending this spring and this summer reconnecting with my family and my friends. And I'm gonna be doing some travel um, both here in the US and as well as in Europe. And just kind of enjoying and resetting after, you know, the stress of a doctoral program and the stress of COVID and the stress of, for, for about two years, I was overseas without really a, an easy way to get back home because of the pandemic. Um, 
And I don't know where that will lead me. So I, I'm looking for senior level and, and near senior level student affairs work, mostly in the US, but also overseas. Uh, I am open to considering maybe doing something in the consulting world. I was intentional when I did my dissertation. I did it in organizational leadership studies, specifically because I wanted to have more doors open to me and have options of doing different kinds of things moving forward. Um, but I don't know. I, I hope that by the time the fall comes, I can answer that question accurately, but I don't actually know. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I, I appreciate all of your sharings. And like um, Kevin mentioned, the research shouldn't be the life work, it should be the uh, beginning. So I honestly, I feel very interested. Uh, feel like I wanna do the research in the future, even though I'm not a doctoral student, but maybe in the future, if I ever get into the doctoral program, your research definitely kind of enlightened my passion in doing the research and thank you for that. Um, and I really appreciate to see that you're sharing about the SWIFT trust. I wish this could happen like in any organization, just like how we can use that into the uh, local organization. And thank you again for your time. I hope that whatever journey comes in your way in the future will be great for you and wish you all the best. Thank you, Kevin. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate it. I apologize for the dog barking. This is our new COVID, COVID reality. Uh, no, I very much appreciate that. And I appreciate that you and, and the commission nominated me and or, you know accepted me for an award. Uh, and certainly for any of your listeners out there, if they want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm, I'm happy to have individual conversations with anyone who's interested in the research or in, in working overseas in, in other contexts. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you again, Kevin. And for our audience, if you haven't checked, Kevin's research is available. Just Google it and you will love it. Yeah, it's definitely well time spent. Thank you again. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.